Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. And speaking of which, we had a brand new one come in this past week from iTunes user Lemon Nerd Boy, a.k.a. Andy, the founder of the Questionable Endeavor Network. He writes, quote, How have I not reviewed this yet? This is one of the funniest podcasts found on the Questionable Endeavor Network. I've had the pleasure of being on his show, and I can't believe I haven't reviewed until now. This is a one-man show that keeps my attention from beginning to end. Great work, Henry. Well, thank you very much, sir. And for the record, if you're wondering which episodes Andy appeared on, he co-hosted episodes 7 and 17, in case you want to go back and give those a listen. In the meantime, be sure to visit questandnetwork.com where you can find this fine podcast along with several others such as the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, the New Blood Rising Podcast, the Shadow Vein Podcast, the Slasher Sanitarium, and Tuning Japanese, among others. Oh, and speaking of Tuning Japanese, I have to give a big thank you to Bill for joining the last episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast. He was a fantastic guest, and I would recommend you go back and listen to that episode if you have not done so already. Great stuff. Also, thank you to the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast for being patient with our episode schedule lately. I just got back from spending two weeks on my honeymoon, so the podcast was on somewhat of a mini hiatus, but I'm back now, so we are good to go. Thanks a lot for sticking with the show. Alright, so, with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, October 12th, 1998, and we are live from the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island in Uniondale, New York. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this arena include SummerSlam 2002, Great American Bash 2008, and two other episodes of Raw, which we've already covered on our timeline, the December 29th, 1997 Raw, covered in episode number two, and the April 20th Raw, covered in episode number 18. We open the show with a recap of the Stone Cold Steve Austin-Vince McMahon rivalry from the past month, including Vince stealing Austin's smoking skull belt, Austin riding a Zamboni into the arena, and Austin attacking Vince in the hospital. Jim Ross's narration then informs us that, despite all of this chaos, Vince has personally invited Stone Cold to come to Raw tonight, but, uh, shouldn't we just assume he would be there anyway? After that recap, we then cut to footage from earlier tonight, where we see Vince McMahon driving into the Nassau Coliseum in his own personal Corvette instead of his usual chauffeured limousine. And, of course, because he's an evil bastard, he stops to yell at a nearby attendant for not opening the garage door fast enough for him. For those of you who are wondering, Vince driving his own car to the arena is not that much of a stretch because the trip from Greenwich, Connecticut to Uniondale only takes about an hour, so that would certainly be an easy trip for the chairman to make. 
When he parks the car, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter immediately approach Vince with a wheelchair so he can easily get himself around the building, despite his broken leg. It's one of those automated wheelchairs where you can push a lever and it will move forward or backward, and I have to say, the sight of Vince maneuvering himself around in it is pretty funny. And to make things even more ridiculous, the back of the chair has the WWF logo on it, along with the words, Mr. McMahon. Clearly, the Stooges went all out. Oh, and one other little detail was that the wheelchair had one of those inflatable donut cushions on the seat because, as you may recall from last week's hospital attack, Stone Cold forcibly shoved an enema up Vince's ass. Never forget that part, folks. Steve Austin committed male rape. But anyway, the most important thing to take away here is the fact that Vince has driven his own Corvette into the arena, and, well, let's just say you may want to remember that part for later in the broadcast. So once again, we do not queue up the opening credits, the pyro, or the obligatory scanning of the crowd, and instead we just jump right into the action. But of course, I will still point out some of the most noteworthy signs in the crowd for you, and there were a bunch of them, including Jake Roberts lives on, the people's elbow is the shit, McMahon hasn't got a leg to stand on, will plow snow for head, playboy needs you, Sable, sorry pal, gotta wait six more months there, Dancing Dan loves Coke. I'll have what Hall's having. Wrestling is fake. The Rock fears my wife's cooking. McMahon wears grape smugglers. Stone Cold trashed Goldberg's bar mitzvah. The six greatest things in wrestling, Jacqueline, Sable, Terry, and my personal favorite sign, a woman held one up which said, Val, you, me, need I say more? and a canister of whipped cream was taped to the sign. You gotta respect that dedication. So we open with a match for the WWF Tag Team titles, the New Age Outlaws versus Animal and Draws, who are accompanied by a not-in-costume hawk. Interestingly, the Outlaws do indeed come out together, even though Billy Gunn got into a shouting match with the Road Dog two weeks ago, and then, last week, Road Dog came to the ring with an inflatable blow-up doll instead of Mr. Ass. So how do they explain the fact that the Outlaws have seemingly resolved their differences out of nowhere? Well, I'll allow Billy himself to explain it. Now I guess the question of the week is, what's up with Mr. Ash? Is he leaving DX? Or what's the deal? Well, I've had two weeks to think about it, and the answer is this. If you're not down with the New Age Outlaws and Degeneration X, we got two words for you! I guess that answers the, the question regarding the relationship of the Outlaws, King. So, there's your answer. Billy just decided, eh, I might as well stay in the group. Certainly a very eventful payoff. But now, let's discuss their opponents for a minute here. When we last heard from Hawk about a month and a half ago, he had called into Sunday Night Heat to let everyone know that he would be going to rehab, since his personal demons kept getting the better of him. Well, now, it appears that he's back, but a face-paint-wearing Draws is taking his place in tonight's match, and Hawk then proceeds to join the commentary team, where he gives us some background info on what caused him to seek help. And we have been joined by Hawk, and Hawk, it's great to see you back, but I'm sure the fans are wondering, are you healthy now? Healthy, very healthy, and doing the best I can. Let me ask you a straightaway question, are you sober? Yes, sir, I am sober. I'm glad to hear that. Let me Thank smell you. your breath. 
Shut up, Lawler. Well, what was the problem, Mike, if you don't mind me asking? I got hooked on pain pills over the years. I've had extensive injuries, and I just took it too far. Man, oh man, doesn't it seem a little too close to home when they use a wrestler getting addicted to pain pills as a storyline. I mean, sweet Jesus, that could probably be the real-life scenario for half the locker room at this point in time. But I digress. Hawk then goes on to say that he's acting as an alternate in LOD right now because Animal wants him to prove that he has his act together, and he totally supports that decision because he's a big fan of draws. And clearly, having your best friend replace you in one of the greatest tag teams of all time will certainly not be a trigger that causes him to fall off the wagon as soon as possible. Anyway, here's a quick fun fact for you wrestling journalism fans out there. While this match is going on, you can actually see longtime Pro Wrestling Illustrated writer-photographer Bill Apter snapping pictures at ringside, so I'm sure PWI had some good shots for that week's issue. However, Apter ends up having to get out of the way pretty quickly, as the match only lasts for about two minutes before it devolves into complete chaos. Out of nowhere, the Disciples of Apocalypse and Paul Ellering just came out from backstage and started beating the shit out of Hawk, so Draws and Animal then left the ring and started brawling with them as well. Road Dogg and Billy Gunn then simply watched all the carnage from back in the ring, but then, of all teams, the headbangers snuck in behind the outlaws and smashed a boombox over Road Dogg's head. Now that may seem random, but if you flash back almost exactly one year ago, on October 20th, 1997, the outlaws had their very first match together on Raw against the headbangers, and they won that match when Billy clobbered Thrasher in the head with a boombox. I'm assuming that must have been an intentional callback. So the headbangers then ran backstage, and a bunch of referees eventually separated LOD and DOA, but this was certainly a chaotic start to the evening. We then also got a close-up shot of Road Dog's face, where we could see that his forehead was a bloody mess from getting hit with that boombox, and I'm pretty sure it was Hardway, the D-O-double-G, getting some good old-fashioned B-L-double-O-D. Oh, and I assume the match was ruled a no contest because, you know, Vince Russo booking. We then cut to Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler, and JR provides us with a bombshell announcement. As of last Friday, Vince McMahon has stripped the injured Triple H of his Intercontinental title, and on tonight's episode of Raw, there will be a one-night-only tournament to crown a brand new IC champion. JR says that Mr. McMahon has not informed anyone of whom the participants will be, so I guess we can all be surprised together. But really, the biggest surprise here is that Vince McMahon actually took something away from Triple H instead of handing everything to him. I know, I know, I'm as shocked as you are. And speaking of Vince, we then cut backstage where we see him sitting on a couch with his injured leg elevated, and he's apparently watching a monitor as Kane makes his arrival in the arena. And, once again, they attempt to completely kill Kane's mystique because, when he enters the building, he's wearing sweatpants and a purple fucking jacket. Quick tip, WWF, one of your most badass heels should not be shown on camera looking like Grimace on Casual Friday. Just trust me on this one. After a commercial break, we go back to the arena where it's time for our first match in the Intercontinental Title Tournament and get fucking ready because it's Ken Shamrock versus Steve Blackman. Hell yeah. When Shamrock comes to the ring, Jim Ross points out that he's receiving a fair amount of booze this week, which would make sense since they have slowly been building a potential heel turn for the world's most dangerous man lately. And sure enough, he acts a bit heelish at the start of the match by kicking Blackman in the stomach and jumping him before the bell rings. So throughout the match, JR kept pointing out that Blackman was still not fully recovered from knee surgery, and Shamrock would attempt to exploit that by working on Blackman's injured knee throughout the match. 
After only about two and a half minutes, Blackman made the mistake of standing over Shamrock to taunt him, which allowed the world's most dangerous man to grab his leg and hook him in the ankle lock, resulting in the tap-out victory. And so, Ken Shamrock is your first man to advance in tonight's tournament. However, as soon as the match ended, things proceeded to get interesting. A random man in a costume ran down to ringside and attacked both men, and, well, I'll just let Jim Ross tell it. Is that? That looks like that looks like the blue blazer. To me, I think that or something couldn't be the blue blazer. He attacked both of these guys, Shamrock first, and then he really went after Blackman with a vengeance. Well, what is going on here? So after that sneak attack by the blue blazer. An irate Shamrock then proceeds to put the ankle lock back on Blackman while yelling for the referee to get out of his way. Eventually, he relinquished the hold, but this potential heel turn for Shamrock certainly seems to be progressing. But okay, let's touch on the Blue Blazer for a moment here. For those of you who are somehow not familiar with this infamous for all the wrong reasons character, the Blue Blazer was Owen Hart's initial gimmick when he came to the WWF in 1988. He was essentially portrayed as a masked superhero who dressed in a blue singlet along with a feathery blue cape. He had a few notable matches in his early run with the company, particularly a match against Mr. Perfect at WrestleMania V, but the gimmick was pretty short-lived, lasting only about a year until Owen returned to the independent circuit. And when he left, the Blue Blazer was never to be seen again, or so we thought. Flashing back to 1998, you may recall that Owen Hart kayfabe injured Dan Severn's neck with a tombstone pile driver two weeks ago on Raw, and then one week ago, he refused to even wrestle Edge because he was so distraught over what he did. He also cut an emotional promo last week where he was on the verge of tears, so it really seemed like they were going to turn this into a dramatic emotional angle. But now Owen is back to being his old character from the 80s, and they're going to play it up for laughs because, well... Actually, I'm not sure why. If we go back to the beginning of our timeline here on the Raw Attitude podcast when 1998 started, Owen was arguably the hottest babyface on the roster as the sole Hart family member remaining in the company after the Montreal Screwjob. Fast forward nine months later, and he's doing a comedy superhero gimmick for no apparent reason. I dare say they may have dropped the ball on this one. Also, I didn't realize that Owen reverted to the Blue Blazer gimmick this early. For obvious reasons, I now know that we have seven months of it left to go, but with that being said, I'm looking forward to actually seeing how wacky this gets. Owen was always known as a funny guy, so even though this had the potential to be a quality dramatic storyline when they initially did the injury angle with Severn, I eagerly anticipate the ridiculousness that Owen will no doubt bring to this character going forward. So stay tuned, Blazer fans. We then cut backstage where, ugh, we see The Undertaker entering the arena dressed in street clothes. His choice of attire this evening is a pair of sunglasses, black workout pants, and a black t-shirt that says tattoos. They're playing up the fact that The Undertaker and Kane entered separately tonight instead of together, but they should be playing up the fact that both of them look like complete jackasses when they're not wearing their ring attire. Yeesh. We then go elsewhere backstage where Val Venus and Terry Runnels are making out with each other. Jim Ross then reminds us that Goldust has said that he will return tonight, and we then kick into a highlight package that reminds us who Goldust is, just in case we forgot during the five whole months that he was gone. 
Specifically, they show highlights of Goldust beating up Razor Ramon and Rowdy Roddy Piper, and I'm sure it was purely coincidental that both of those men just so happened to be in WCW at this time. Total coincidence. Total coincidence. This segues us back into the arena for our next contest, and it's an Intercontinental Title Tournament match. Val Venus, accompanied by Terry Runnels, versus Mark Merrow, accompanied by WWF Women's Champion Jacqueline. In his pre-match promo, Val actually gets in a pretty solid sexual innuendo when he says that the Big Valboski is a lot like a clock because you need to put two hands and a face on it. Well, hey, I thought that was pretty amusing anyway. Also, in a new development, we see that Jackie now actually has a title belt. Yes, this is our first look at the brand new WWF Women's Championship, and truthfully, the belt is pretty shitty looking. But hey, at least they have one now, I suppose. So this was another match that barely went more than two minutes, and the finish came when Terry Runnels got up on the ring apron to distract Marrow, which allowed Val to hook him into a fisherman's suplex and score the relatively easy three count. Val will now advance in the tournament to face Ken Shamrock in the next round. However, as soon as the match ends, Jacqueline goes over to Terry and starts beating the shit out of her. Eventually, referees are able to separate them, but clearly the message here is not to mess with the new women's champion. And on that note, you may recall last week that Jacqueline took out a pair of scissors and cut off a chunk of Sable's hair. Well, this week, Jackie braided that chunk of Sable's hair in with her own. Very creepy, but effective. We then cut backstage where we see the arrival of a surprising guest. Paul Bearer has entered the building, and he's holding a briefcase for some reason. He hasn't been seen on Raw since the Go Home episode before SummerSlam seven weeks ago, so why is he here now? Stay tuned because it's going to get interesting, folks. We then cut elsewhere backstage where Michael Cole was standing by with Sable, but he barely gets to speak two words before she runs off to Jacqueline's locker room. Sable grabs Jackie by her hair and drags her out into the tech area by the stage where the two women start to brawl with each other. And, once again, the collection of referees who would otherwise have nothing to do are forced to make themselves busy by separating a pair of feuding women. Gotta earn those paychecks. Also, I know this will come as a shock to you, but... It appears that Jackie's boobs once again fell out of their singlet during that brawl. I know, I know. Very hard to believe. After a commercial break, it's time for our next Intercontinental Title Tournament bout, Mark Henry versus hometown favorite Mankind, who grew up less than an hour away from the arena. Before the match begins, we get a pre-taped interview between Michael Cole and Mankind, and, well, I'll just play it for you here. Mankind, the Judgment Day, you have to take on Ken Shamrock, and you got to be angry after Shamrock leveled you recently with a chair. Well, not really. You see, the, the fact of the matter is, is that Ken Shamrock doesn't really swing a chair hard enough to hurt me. As a matter of fact, in all the years and all the times I've been being hit with chairs, the one by Shamrock was the weakest, wimpiest, and wishy-washiest of them all. So I'm not all that concerned about Ken Shamrock at Judgment Day. And if he doesn't like it, well, I've got one word for him. Socko! Have a nice day! So as you could probably figure out, Mankind held up Socko at the tail end of that promo, and as you heard there, Socko got a massive pop from the Long Island fans. Not only that, but when Mark Henry was making his entrance, you could hear several Socko chants from the crowd. That's right, folks, the sock with the face drawn on it is over with the crowd. Before the match began, we also got another pre-taped promo, where Mark Henry recited a poem that was meant for China, who, as you may recall, he is suing for sexual harassment. 
I feel like it probably hurts your case when you sue someone for harassment, but then you are openly courting that very same person. But then again, I'm no Clarence Mason, so what do I know? And speaking of massive pops, as soon as the match begins, the aforementioned China starts walking down the ramp, and the crowd also gives her a very nice ovation. Interestingly, though, China does not make her presence felt at all during this three-minute match, as Mark Henry dominates for most of it. At one point, however, Mankind ducked a clothesline and managed to hit Henry with a double-arm DDT. From there, Mankind removed his shoe to reveal that, yes, he was wearing Mr. Sacco on his foot. He then proceeded to take Sacco off, put it on his hand, shove it into Henry's mouth, and score the first-ever Sacco-aided submission victory with the Mandible Claw. And once again, I will repeat, Sacco got a huge pop when he was revealed to the crowd. I think Foley may be onto something here. After the match, China entered the ring and got in Henry's face. We could hear her ask him what he wants from her, to which Henry replied that everything was, quote, out of his hands now, presumably meaning that it was now a matter for the courts. Ah, young love. We then cut backstage where we see that Stone Cold Steve Austin has arrived in the arena and he's driving a cement truck. Michael Cole attempts to get a word with Austin, but he tells him to get lost because he's looking forward to trying out his new equipment. We then cut to Vince McMahon and the Stooges elsewhere backstage, who are surprised at this development, with an agitated Vince in particular yelling, He's driving a cement truck? Clearly what we've learned over the past few weeks is that Steve Austin enjoys unconventional vehicles. We then head back to the arena for our next match in the Intercontinental Title Tournament, Jeff Jarrett vs. X-Pac. These two have actually developed a bit of a rivalry over the past few months, as Pac beat Double J at SummerSlam in the Hair vs. Hair match, and Jarrett clobbered X-Pac in the head with a guitar at Breakdown a few weeks ago, resulting in a splinter injuring Pac's right eye. Much like the other matches in this tournament so far, this one only went about three minutes, but I will say that's not necessarily a complaint. On a show where they're doing a tournament that's going to consist of seven matches, I'm totally fine with keeping them relatively brief, since they only have roughly an hour and a half of actual TV time. So the finish played out like this. With Jarrett in the corner, X-Pac hopped up on the second rope to kick him in the face, but when Pac jumped back down, he accidentally elbowed referee Mike Chioda in the face, knocking him to the ground. Pac then went for the Bronco Buster, but Jarrett put his foot up, causing Pac to take an incredibly painful-looking ball shot. From there, with Kyoto still hurt, Jarrett rolled to the floor, looked under the ring, and pulled out a guitar case. He rolled the case into the ring and opened it, but, instead of his guitar being there, what he found was... head. This distracted Jarrett enough for X-Pac to roll him up, and, with Kyoto having now recovered, he counted the one, the two... And the three, meaning X-Pac will now advance to the second round of the tournament, where he will face Mankind. And then, as soon as the match ended, Al Snow ran into the ring, grabbed Head, and scampered away through the crowd, as Jim Ross speculated that Snow and Jarrett may now have a rivalry brewing between them. A rivalry which will no doubt be enjoyed by dozens of fans. We then head backstage again, where we see Stone Cold Steve Austin driving his cement truck toward... Another vehicle... And, well, let's just pick it up from there. I knew it! Jared's going to try to drive it right in here! Get ready to run! He'll run over us! Wait a minute, that's... Hey, wait a minute! Don't run over Mr. McMahon! Or Oh, I don't think he's... It doesn't look like he's going to run over it! Wait a minute! Oh, my God, I don't believe this! You can't do that! I do not believe this, ladies and gentlemen! 
and gentlemen, Mr. McMahon! Mr. McMahon! That's one of the Corvettes in Mr. McMahon's collection! $50,000 car! Now, if you were a fan during the Attitude Era, you probably remember this moment quite vividly, but if not, I'll give a quick description of what you just heard. Stone Cold approaches Vince's Corvette and angles the tube of the cement truck so that it's pointed directly into the front seat of the car. From there, Austin proceeds to pour the cement, or as Jim Ross would say, the cement, directly into the Corvette until it completely fills up. And in one of my all-time favorite visuals from the Attitude Era, when the car is almost filled to the brim with cement... The windows completely shatter, causing the cement to pour out of the sides, which received an audible gasp from the crowd. Also, while all of this is going on, they're frequently cutting away back to the chairman's office where we can see Vince's horrified reaction to one of his prized vehicles being destroyed. And as always, Vince does a fantastic job of selling the absolute lunacy that occurs in front of him. And after a commercial break, we go back to the arena, where America's favorite concrete tradesman, Stone Cold Steve Austin, is now heading to the ring to a huge pop from the fans. Fun fact, Austin is wearing a brand new t-shirt which says Austin 316 in red drippy blood writing on the front, and on the back is a picture of his bloody face from his WrestleMania 13 match against Bret Hart with the phrase, blood from a stone on it. Of all his merchandise, this is one of the shirts that stands out the most in my mind, aside from, of course, the original Austin 316 shirt. So Austin grabs a mic and says that when Vince screwed him out of the WWF Championship, he cemented his own fate. He then says that even though he's going to be the special guest referee for the Undertaker-Kane WWF Championship match this Sunday at Judgment Day, the only hand he's going to raise will be his own, and there's nothing Vince can do about that. But once he says that, Vince McMahon wheels himself out from backstage to the top of the ramp. Austin immediately starts walking up the aisle to go after him, but before he can get to the chairman, a ski mask wearing man in a black vest appears, holding a nightstick. Stone Cold continues walking toward Vince, but then two police officers with German shepherds on leashes emerge from backstage. Austin creeps a little closer, but the police dogs are loudly barking at him so he can't get close enough to Vince without putting himself in danger. With his arch-nemesis unable to harm him any further, a cocky Mr. McMahon then books Stone Cold in a match tonight. He's going to be in a tag team match facing The Undertaker and Kane, and Austin's partner will be... The Rock. Holy shit. Austin and Rock teaming up to face the Brothers of Destruction. Sign me the fuck up. And now, I'm going to play the rest of Vince's promo here, because not only is it maniacal, but it's actually pretty funny at times as well, and at the end of it, Vince actually lays out some very important potential consequences for Stone Cold this Sunday at Judgment Day. I think of all I've been through these last two weeks, and I admit, my life has been a living hell. I admit... 
listen to these moronic New York fans. What's the matter with you people? They're wishing Mr. McMahon condolences in their own unique way. I don't know how good your hearing is, but you got about 15,000 people calling you an asshole. <laughs> Over the last two weeks, it all started after you lost the WWF title and you recklessly and carelessly drove that Zamboni at full speed into the arena. You didn't care who you ran over as long as you got to me. And then from there, you got to me, all right? And after you did, and because of you, The Undertaker and Kane crushed my ankle it's crushed i may never ever again play another polo match i may never again ride a horse ever i may never again compete in an athletic event and i hold you responsible and then in the hospital last week my god my head is still ringing from being struck in the cranium by that thick metal bedpan. Bedpan McMahon. My nervous system is still in shock over that defibrillation. In my rectal area. What? Oh, no. When you stuck... You violated me, Austin. You violated me. open hospital down let me tell you something as much humiliation as I had that I've suffered you're gonna suffer more and I'll tell you where and I'll tell you when it'll be this Sunday and it'll be in Chicago let me tell you something if you don't raise the hand of a new World Wrestling Federation champion and humble yourself before me then read my lips. I promise you, I guarantee you, Austin, uh -oh. that if you don't raise the hand of a new WWF champion this Sunday on the spot, I will fire your ass. Good job. Whoa! He guaranteed it! You stupid bastards, you ain't got the ball. Fire Stone Cold Steve Austin. I don't have the balls. I've got balls the size of grapefruits. And this Sunday, you're going to be picking the seeds out of your teeth because, Austin, you will be humbled. I guarantee it, one way or the other. The easy way, you raise the hand of a champion. The hard way, I publicly, I guarantee, I will fire your ass this Sunday. So there you have it, Stone Cold will be fired this Sunday at Judgment Day if he does not award the WWF title to either The Undertaker or Kane. Pretty dire consequences for the rattlesnake there if he chooses to disobey the boss. Not only that, but we got the very first instance of Vince referring to his testicles as grapefruits, so this is a pretty historic night. Also, who was that masked man who is seemingly acting as Mr. McMahon's new head of security? There's so much to unpack here... And we still have 45 fucking minutes left in the show. This is peak Austin McMahon craziness, and I fucking love it. Talk about a hard act to follow. 
but follow it someone must so we continue on with the semifinals of the Intercontinental Title Tournament and our next match will be Ken Shamrock versus Val Venus who is once again accompanied by Terry Runnels. And yet again we get the sense that Shamrock has segued almost into full-on heel mode because he actually jumps Val from behind as he's walking down the ramp to make his entrance. Shamrock beats the shit out of Val outside the ring for a little while, including whipping him back first into the steel stairs. He then rolls Val into the ring, and the referee rings the bell to start the match, so, uh, I guess Shamrock's strategy was pretty smart then, since there were no consequences for his actions. This match lasted a little bit longer than any of the first round matches, clocking in at about four and a half minutes, and the finish came when Val whipped Shamrock off the ropes, but Shamrock ducked a back elbow, then clipped Val's leg. From there, he put Val into the ankle lock and scored the clean tap-out victory, advancing to the finals of the tournament, where he will meet the winner of Mankind vs. X-Pac. Shamrock then headed backstage, leaving Val clutching his ankle in pain in the ring. And from there, well, let's take a listen to what happens next. It's going to be a, a great matchup, whomever it may be, X-Pac and Mankind. And... What? Well, there he is, the big So what you heard there was Goldust coming to the ring, punching Val in the face a few times, then standing him up in one of the corners. From there, he positioned each one of Val's legs on the middle ropes, leaving the, uh, big Valboski completely vulnerable to a potential attack. And from there, Goldust proceeded to get a running start, charge at Val, and kick him right in the dick, a move which will come to be known as Shattered Dreams. Terry then tended to Val, but it certainly seemed as though they may need to cancel their plans for the rest of the night. Also, one fun tidbit here is that right before Goldust hit the Shattered Dreams, if you listen closely, you can actually hear him yell, Fuck you to Val. So there you have it, folks. Goldust has returned after a five-month absence. Truthfully, I think the impact of his comeback was lessened since they flat-out told us last week, as well as earlier in tonight's broadcast, that Goldust was definitely going to show up at some point, so the fans were obviously expecting it well in advance. Plus, he returned in the segment immediately following Stone Cold and Vince McMahon being at each other's throats, so I feel like that was probably a factor as to why he didn't get as big of an ovation as he might have if they put this segment at another spot on the show. But oh well, what can you do? 
Goldust is back, and let's just say, since the character is still on Raw in 2017, I think they made the right choice to bring him back. We then go backstage where Vince McMahon and the Stooges are looking at the wreckage of Vince's car. The chairman says that his briefcase was inside, and Mankind arrives just in time to hear him say that, so Foley then reaches down into the cement-filled car in an attempt to retrieve the case. Needless to say, he was unsuccessful. After a commercial break, we go backstage again, where Michael Cole is with The Rock. He shoves Cole out of the frame and starts cutting a promo, but he soon gets interrupted by his Nation of Domination stablemates, D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry. D'Lo asks Rock if he thinks he's too good to be with them now, since The Rock is scheduled to team up with Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight, so Rock tells them both to come with him so they can discuss it behind closed doors. My question is... Did D'Lo miss the part where Vince McMahon forced Rock to team with Austin? It wasn't like The Rock and Austin suddenly formed their own tag team, although that would be pretty awesome if they did. We now head back to the arena for our second semifinal match in the IC title tournament, X-Pac versus a now-covered-in-concrete Mankind. At one point in the match, Mankind grabbed a chair and brought it into the ring, seemingly ready to hit X-Pac with it, but referee Mike Chioda prevented him from doing so. Mick then tossed the chair out of the ring, which would end up coming into play shortly because, about a minute later, Mankind and X-Pac brawled to the floor near where that chair was lying. Ken Shamrock then emerged from backstage and stood at the edge of the ramp, seemingly scouting his two would-be opponents for the tournament final. However, when Mankind rolled X-Pac back into the ring, Shamrock grabbed the chair and nailed Mick in the ankle with it behind Kyoto's back. Mankind rolled back into the ring, and that allowed X-Pac to roll him up for the 1, the 2, and the 3. Your final for the Intercontinental Title Tournament is now set. It will be X-Pac versus Ken Shamrock. However, as soon as the match ended, Shamrock jumped X-Pac from behind, then tossed Mankind out of the ring for good measure. Shamrock then put a figure 4 head scissors on X-Pac, not every day you see that move, and Pac tapped the mat wildly. Mankind was going to head back into the ring and break it up, but the Stooges came out from backstage and told him that Mr. McMahon wanted to see him. Mankind then headed to the locker room as referees came out from backstage in an attempt to get Shamrock to relinquish the hold. And fittingly, the crowd responded to the unsportsmanlike antics of the world's most dangerous man by serenading him with loud, Shamrock sucks chants. I think we can now call this an official heel turn. After a commercial break, Pac is now lying down in the corner, and Shamrock is stomping him as referees continue to try and get him to leave the man alone. We can now also see that Triple H has made his way to ringside, and he's supporting himself with crutches after his recent knee surgery. One of the referees asks X-Pac if he's able to fight, and we then get some more R-rated dialogue on tonight's broadcast. Wow, two F-bombs on one show. Clearly the guy responsible for the seven-second delay needed at least one more second to get his act together. Also, I hope Vince McMahon doesn't mind that X-Pac said, Ring the fucking bell, since that is obviously his trademark catchphrase from the 1997 Survivor Series. But anyway, sure enough, they do indeed ring the fucking bell, and the match starts despite the fact that X-Pac is still lying on his back in one of the corners. Triple H then proceeds to join the commentary team for what I believe is the first time since King of the Ring when he gave us that hilarious line about how he is, quote, by a lot of things, but Lingual isn't one of them. Sadly, he didn't give us many quality lines this time around. 
As for the match itself, it only lasted about four minutes, and they played up the notion that X-Pac was giving it his best shot, despite the fact that he was attacked by Shamrock before the match even began. At one point, Pac actually did manage to hit X-Pac with the Bronco Buster, but then he grabbed his neck as though he was still hurting from when Shamrock gave him that figure four head scissors. Pac then went for a spinning heel kick, but Shamrock caught his leg and put him in the ankle lock. X-Pac did manage to get to the ropes, so the hold had to be broken, but Shamrock just went right back to locking it in. And from there, X-Pac tapped out. That means that your winner and the new WWF Intercontinental Champion is Ken Shamrock. This is the first title in the WWF for the world's most dangerous man, so it appears as though that heel turn is doing wonders for him already. After the match, Mankind ran into the ring with a chair, so Shamrock walked back up the aisle, jawing with a few fans in the process. Shamrock and Mankind will face each other this Sunday at Judgment Day, so this actually didn't work out too badly for Mick, I suppose, since he's going to end up getting an Intercontinental title match anyway. Go figure. And when we come back from commercial, it is now time for one hell of a main event, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock versus The Undertaker and Kane. The Brothers of Destruction enter first, and they proceed to have a stare-down with each other in the middle of the ring. If you recall last week, Taker interfered in Kane's match with Ken Shamrock and cost him a victory, and later that night, Kane then smacked The Undertaker in the back with a steel chair during his match with The Rock. The Brothers of Destruction had been united for about two months now, but it seems as though their upcoming match for the WWF title at Judgment Day is beginning to cause them to unravel. And on that note, about a minute after the match began, Paul Bearer walked to ringside. Taker then appeared to motion toward him and asked Kane why Bearer was there, but he received no response from his brother. Shortly thereafter, The Rock was tagged into the match, and we got a pretty amusing spot. He slammed Taker and went for the people's elbow, but Taker did his zombie sit-up routine, so Rock just calmly kicked him in the face, knocking him back down to the mat, and then he hit the elbow anyway. Good stuff. We were then joined by even more guests at ringside, as D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry then headed down the ramp, presumably to provide backup for Rock, who I assume is still technically the leader of the Nation of Domination. And unlike last week when they came out from backstage, they would certainly make their presence felt during this match. So The Rock was being beaten down by The Undertaker and Kane for a while, before he finally managed to tag in Stone Cold. With The Rock lying down on the ring apron and recuperating from his beating... D'Lo and Mark Henry grabbed him and pulled him down to the floor, which the cameras unfortunately almost missed completely. From there, D'Lo slammed the rock on the floor, and Mark Henry followed up with a splash. D'Lo and Henry then headed backstage as the rock lay motionless on the floor, and I think we can safely say that this officially signals the end of the Nation of Domination. Meanwhile, the match was still going on, and, much like it broke down a few weeks ago, it was once again down to Stone Cold versus The Undertaker and Kane. With Austin attempting to fight back, the ski mask-wearing man who was acting as Mr. McMahon's personal security guard ran into the ring and smacked Stone Cold in the face with his nightstick, resulting in a disqualification. From there, he removed his mask and, well, you could probably guess who it was, but let's listen to Jim Ross tell it. Here comes that security guy. Let go! What the hell? McMahon security guard! It's a big boss man! What? That's McMahon security! It's a big boss man! 
That's right, the big boss man is back in the WWF after being gone from the company since March of 1993. And this is the first time that boss man has been a heel in the WWF since February of 1990. Boss man had been wrestling in WCW since 1993 under various gimmicks, but he hadn't been used as frequently in the company by the time 1998 rolled around. In fact, WCW hadn't put him on television since the March 31st, 1998 episode of WCW Saturday Night, and they basically just let his contract play out over the past six months. But their loss is the WWF's gain, I suppose, so he is now back with the company, wearing a new SWAT team-style uniform, as opposed to his former powder blue police shirt. Truthfully, he kind of looks like he was the inspiration for The Shield 14 years in advance. And to his credit, he's actually in pretty good shape. If you go back and watch footage of him from his final days in WCW, he was pretty friggin' fat, so kudos to him for making the effort to trim down. Anyway, once Bossman jumps Austin, we see that Vince McMahon has now wheeled himself to the top of the ramp, where he's flanked by Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter. From there, The Undertaker and Kane proceed to continue beating the crap out of Stone Cold as Bossman stands by and looks on. Taker then put Austin into a leg grapevine, which is the same move he used to incapacitate Vince's leg a few weeks ago, right before he smashed the chairman's ankle with the steel stairs. And that is how we went off the air. Quite the lead into Judgment Day, I must say. Ah, but if you're watching this episode on the WWE Network, you actually get an additional five minutes of bonus footage called Extra Attitude, which shows what happened once the show went off the air. The Undertaker and Kane have now left the ring, and Boss Man is choking Austin with his nightstick. We get a close-up on Stone Cold's face, and we can see that he's actually bleeding a little bit, so it looks like that first nightstick shot may have actually busted him open. Boss Man then leaves and heads up the ramp, and we can hear him yelling, I'm enforcing McMahon's law now, and you're gonna abide by it. Vince and the Stooges then give him the thumbs up, and Boss Man heads to the locker room. However, the four of them want to get a closer look at Stone Cold lying face down in the ring, so they wheel Vince down the ramp. Mr. McMahon tells Patterson and Briscoe to, quote, put the boots to him as Commissioner Slaughter stays behind to guard the chairman. Patterson and Briscoe then do indeed start to beat on Austin, but he quickly turns the tide and gives stunners to both of them, with Briscoe unfortunately selling his as though it was a snapmare. The Rock then re-entered the ring, apparently he was still lying on the ground the whole time, and he gave a double people's elbow to the Stooges. Meanwhile, Austin headed out of the ring and punched Slaughter in the face, leaving Vince by himself. McMahon tried to have his mechanized wheelchair go up the ramp, but apparently the incline was too steep, so Stone Cold then pulled Vince down to the ground by the back of his jacket and booted him several times until Earl Hebner managed to get between them. Austin then headed up the ramp and gave his customary middle fingers to the crowd. The Stooges then attempted to pick Vince up, and he angrily called Slaughter a son of a bitch for allowing Stone Cold to get to him. Patterson and Briscoe helped Vince walk up the ramp, and amusingly, on their way to the locker room, Vince spotted a fan off to the side who was holding a McMahon Fears Austin sign, and he yelled at the Stooges to grab the sign from the fan. Vince having signs confiscated? It's just like real life. And that was how this episode of Raw concluded. But there's still lots more to cover here, so let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the hype like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno 
Carlos San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Not a rock and stone coal on my favorite maniacs. The top rooster plucking, chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap. Last week, in one of the closest battles in the history of the Monday Night War, Raw beat Nitro in the ratings by the score of 4.549 to 4.546. This week, the battle was not as ridiculously close as that one, but it was still incredibly tight. Nitro put up a 4.7 rating, but they were once again defeated by Raw's 4.81. That makes four straight wins for the WWF since Nitro last beat them on September 14th when Ric Flair returned to WCW. And, of course, for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro. Wrath defeated Lodi. Dale Torborg defeated Kendall Windham. Yes, that's right. This was the WCW debut of the future Kiss Demon. Alex Wright defeated Fit Finley. Chavo Guerrero, Psychosis, and Super Calo defeated Ciclope, La Parca, and Viano 5. Juventud Guerrera defeated Prince Iakea. Chris Jericho defeated Raven to retain his World Television Championship. Goldberg defeated the Giant by Countout in a no-disqualification match to retain his World Heavyweight Championship. And yes, you heard that correctly. There were no DQs, but apparently there were countouts. OWCW. And in your main event, Sting and the Warrior defeated Hollywood Hogan and Bret Hart by disqualification. And I have to admit, that does sound pretty intriguing, since Sting and the Warrior got their start as the Blade Runners in the UWF in 1985, and it looks like they got to re-team for just one night, so that's pretty cool. However, WCW had to feel pretty deflated on this evening, because they put Warrior in his first ever match on Nitro, but they still ended up losing in the ratings. At this point, they were probably wondering what they could do to seize back the momentum. And on that note, I will tell you what certainly won't win back the momentum, and it's segments that insult their audience, like one in particular, which aired on this night. For the past several weeks, episodes of Nitro have occasionally been interrupted by maniacal cackling over the loudspeakers, causing fans to think that perhaps a new, crazy character would be debuting soon. But tonight, we found out who was responsible for all of that laughter over the past few weeks. With Mean Gene Okerlund in the ring conducting an interview with Rick Steiner, they were interrupted by the sinister cackling, and we then panned over to the Turnertron, where we could see that the laughter was coming from... Chucky, the evil doll from the Child's Play franchise of horror movies. And here is some audio proof in case you doubt that this actually happened. You know, my brother, he's brought this on himself... And this has been coming for a long, long time, Gene. When we get the fall. What? What the devil? What is that? <laughs> Wait a minute. Take a look. Get that dummy out of here. We're trying to conduct an interview. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> Shut him up, please. Give it a rest. Get that dummy out here. What? Hey, cue ball. Who you calling a dummy? You're standing there with the genetic throwback who barks at the moon. I'm doing love scenes with Jennifer Tilly, and you're calling me a dummy? Say it again. Yeah. yeah we call you. A- you're a dummy. Hey, what's the matter? 
For a guy who never shuts up, you sure don't have much to say, mean Gene. Well, uh, just, just a second here. Uh, uh, Chucky, Shut the hell up. I didn't come here to talk to you anyway. I came here to talk to that idiot standing next to you. What? Hey, hey. Bring your raggedy rear end down here. You got something like to say to me. That, wouldn't you, Ricky? You've been playing with dolls all your life. At least that's what your mother tells me. So not only did Rick Steiner challenge a talking doll to fight him in the ring, but that same doll then schooled him on the mic. That's gotta hurt. Oh, and by the way, Bride of Chucky was opening this Friday, October 16th, 1998, in theaters near you. It did not do well. But I think the bigger point here is that there's a reason why WCW doesn't have many ratings victories left. Just a thought. And on that note, let's go to the Raw synopsis. So once again, the WWF continues to deliver a fast-moving, unpredictable two hours of television. Everything with Austin and Vince was great tonight, and I repeat... We got Stone Cold and The Rock teaming up to take on The Undertaker and Kane on free fucking television. Any question as to whether or not they're upping their game these days? I don't think so. The Intercontinental Title Tournament was certainly an interesting surprise, and truthfully, it probably would have worked better if it was between four guys instead of eight, but it was effective at establishing Ken Shamrock as a force to be reckoned with in his new heel persona. Counting the King of the Ring, Shamrock has now won two separate tournaments in the past four months, so I feel like they should play that up more, but I'm pretty sure they don't. And in case you ever doubted they wanted to keep the viewers on their toes, we also had three returns to the WWF on this night. The Big Boss Man, Gold Dust, and the Blue Blazer. It's been sheer chaos on Raw over the past month, and goddamn, these episodes are a fucking treat to watch. Just start at the September 14th episode and go on a binge watch because everything since then has been absolutely top-notch. Once again, another thumbs up from me for this episode of Raw. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. So as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes just like Andy did because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I'll leave you now with the clip of Owen Hart as the Blue Blazer doing an anti-smoking public service announcement from back in the late 1980s, and if you listen to what he says in the PSA, you may realize that the wording is retroactively incredibly unfortunate. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm the Blue Blazer, and I love to fly high, but one thing that brings me down is people who smoke. It's just no good for you. Take it from me. Stay alive. Fly high. Be a survivor. Don't smoke.